I'm Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hi, shalom, everybody. Ben and Dan here. I uh, hope you're having a terrific week. On today's episode of Juanced, we're happy to have as our guest the ever bold and brilliant Rachel Gore. Rachel is Director of Public Policy at Lobby 99, the world's first crowdfunded nonprofit public interest lobbying firm. An expert in the fields of Israeli legislation, regulation, and public policy, Gur has served in senior positions in the Israeli government, including as legislation advisor to the Knesset Coalition Chairman and senior advisor to the Deputy Foreign Minister, Minister in the Ministries of Immigration and Absorption, Environmental Protection, and Jerusalem and Heritage. Rachel, how's it going? Great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's our absolute pleasure. So what are you up to these days? I am uh, serving as Director of Public Policy uh, for Lobby 99, in which we can talk about what, what exactly Lobby 99 is. It's a very interesting and exciting uh, new development in the political field. Uh, and uh, specifically, I'm actually working on issues uh, related to the cost of living uh, and health care, which we can also get into. And we can also connect to those issues for sure. So yeah, what is Lobby 99? Yes, definitely. It's very timely. So what, what is Lobby 99? And is my rent going down? Your rent is not going down. That's, 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 always, that's, that's an easy question. We actually, uh, when we deal with cost of living, we, uh, we specifically have, uh, have not yet ventured into the field of housing. Uh, it's a very, very complicated you know, uh, matrix of, uh, of interests and pressures. Uh, but what Lobby 99 is, is it's a very interesting model. Uh, the idea is that uh, in today's world, uh, like the founding idea, Lobby 99 was founded about uh, four and a half years ago. We're actually, we'll celebrate our fifth birthday uh, near Hanukkah around Thanksgiving of this year. And it was built on the idea that today, lobbying is a necessary part of any attempt to advance policy. For example, when you go to court, right, you're not going to go to court if you're not represented by an attorney. Uh, Hopefully, you're not going to run a business unless you employ an accountant. And so similarly, if you want to accept it to affect decision making on a macro level, you need a lobbyist. And simply it's the way, you know, the way the world works today. Um, it's not good. It's not no. bad. It's, it's a fact. Interesting. So you're basically saying, you know, this is, this is how you advance interests in a democracy and, uh, and, and so you're going to play the game also, right? Correct. When we come, we as an organization come out of the realization that uh, who hires lobbyists? Lobbyists are very expensive. How much do you think a lobbyist makes on a monthly basis, apropos cost of living? Come on, give me, throw out a number, give me a guess. <laughs> uh, in yes, Israel? Definitely. What, 
in Israel, in Israel. No, no, not in the U.S. Let's talk like, Israel. Like a salary of like a lobbyist, like a good lobbyist. Let's talk about the salary of a, of a lobbyist who works in the Knesset for a uh, you know for an Israeli lobbying company. We're going to throw out maybe forty or fifty thousand shekels a month. So it goes between twenty thousand, which is you know someone who's an entry level you know lobbyist, someone with a background like mine who worked uh, as an advisor to ministers, and it can go up to a monthly retainer of a hundred thousand shekels uh, if you come with a, let's say unique expertise or experience uh, as a senior regulator. Uh, so it's good money. That's it's good. it's definitely good money. Here's the next question. I'm in the wrong can, career, man. Can you get us jobs in lobbying? So unfortunately, I cannot. And the reason I cannot is because you don't have the necessary skills. What, what people are buying when they're buying lobbies, obviously, you guys are, uh, you know, intelligent, eloquent, and, and very, very capable. But when someone... Yes, you see. No, no, we're, I, I know it. I know it. I can already see it. But what someone is buying when they're buying a lobbyist is they're buying the connections. Uh-huh. They're buying the experience, right? In the end, I would... I would claim that any system uh, in the end is an informal system, right? There isn't the government. It isn't some, you know, external creation uh, of people who are disconnected. In the end, especially in Israel, which is a small country, we're talking about two or 300 people max uh, who work at the senior levels of the Knesset and the government. They know each other. They know each other's husbands and wives. They know each other's kids, right? They visited at each other's homes. Um, in the end, it's, it's individual people with interests, uh, with worries, with cares, with causes that are important to them. And if you know the people, then obviously you know how to present your case in the most favorable light. Uh, And also, you know, there's always the formal rules of how the Knesset works and that each law has to pass three readings, etc. But there are also the less formal rules, right? There's the understandings, there's the nitty gritties of uh, the Knesset Takanon, the bylaws of the Knesset, which very few people know unless they've worked in it. So when someone hires you uh, or me to be a lobbyist, uh, and they're what they're looking for is they're looking for my personal connections and my expertise, and that's uh, and that's why some people can make uh, twenty thousand to hundred thousand shekels, and others, you know, are cannot. And these are large sums of money. This was basically the understanding that founded uh, Lobby Ninety Nine, was that the only people who can afford to pay for lobbyists are large corporations. No one else is going to be able to afford those sort of monthly retainers, and the public which by its very nature is uh, not organized, right? Uh, and is, a, some would say, disenfranchised, won't be able to hire lobbyists, right? Because it's, the public is just individual people living their lives. Uh, and this, uh, this realization was the beginning of the creation of Lobby 99. And the idea of Lobby 99 is that this is a forum by which... Who came up with this idea? I mean, this is... Is an interesting idea, right? So, who- so the idea is is, re- is interesting. It's very revolutionary. The founders uh, were the current CEO, uh, Leonor Deutsch, uh, and uh, the former CEO, uh, Yaya Fink, uh, who's no longer part of the project, but has gone on uh, to new new and other things. But the idea was that the we started with a Head Start campaign about five years ago, which was a, it was a short-term campaign. The idea was to create a, enough funding uh, for four months of work. And in the event that these four months were successful, to then expand the model outward. Um, and the model is 
is just that. It is that the public will fund its own lobbyists. Uh, and our commitment uh, to the public and to our members is that we are funded entirely from the first shekel to the last shekel by a by what they call permanent crowdfunding. That means that anybody wants to join, so long as they're an individual, you know, entity, not a corporation, uh, can join for any sum uh, that they so choose, uh, from one shekel to fifteen hundred shekels a month. Uh, and what they do is they give a credit card number, right? Similar to where it's uh, what they call here, you know, Hawatkeva. It's a monthly credit card, a recurring monthly credit card charge uh, of a sum of your choice. And again, it's one shekel to fifteen hundred. The reason we cap at fifteen hundred is we don't want anyone to have undue influence. And because we are committed uh, to the secrecy of the members, that, that we don't, uh, we are a completely transparent organization. The one thing that we don't share is who our members are, and obviously that's to give anybody who wants, you know, the ability to join without having to worry that their name afterwards, you know, will appear in some sort of list for their employer. Yes. Is there? Is there? Um, you had a, a question. Process? Yeah. Is there a vetting process for the uh, people who sign up and who want to contribute to this? Is there any kind of attempt to see, no. you know, maybe it's, it's a corporation who is trying to push an interest or, or something like that. I mean, there, there's always, that concern is always raised. Thus far, we haven't seen a, that it's a problem. We do call each of our new members and, and speak to them. Okay. So we know it's, it's, it's not robots. And also we're committed to the idea that anybody can join. It needs to, the idea is that it needs to be as easy as possible. This is a form of participatory democracy. And that's also one of the reasons that there's no minimum cap on uh, donations. Anyone who joins receives the same voting rights, uh, whether you're donating a shekel a month uh, and whether you're donating uh, 1,500 shekels a month. And we've had a lot of people now, for example, because of the corona, because of the financial crisis, who have uh, lowered their donations to the minimum to a shekel a month. And that's fine. We, we, you know, we're very confident uh, that we provide the public with a critical service. And we understand that when people have the ability, they will raise their donations again. Again, so it's, how, it's their choice. How are the uh, topics that you lobby for chosen? So that's what you get when we're, although we are uh, incorporated uh, as a non-for-profit, we operate like a company. And essentially, our members are our shareholders, our stockholders, okay? We currently have uh, 7,200 members, I believe, uh, last time I looked, as of a few days ago. And each of them gives a monthly sum of their choice, as I said. Uh, the average donation is not high. Uh, if you take the average across uh, 7,200 people, it's something about 40 a little bit over, a little bit under 40 shekels. So we're not talking about people who are giving a lot of money uh, per person. But when you add, you know, 40 times uh, 7,200, you get to an annual budget of almost 4 million shekels, uh, which supports uh, the operations of a 12-person staff. So, you know, it's already grown to be a large organization and we are constantly growing. Um, when you are a member uh, of the lobby, you essentially get three rights. One is the right is to approve our annual budget, which is proposed to our members in November, December of the previous year. And the second and third, perhaps more substantial rights, are the ability to propose the new topic that we're going to deal with. Twice a year, we have a vote. Uh, it more or less corresponds to the two sessions of the Knesset, the, the fall session uh, and the summer session. And then our members have the ability to propose what new issue uh, they think we should deal with. 
uh, they have about a month in which they propose it. We then call uh, the proposals to make sure that they are in line with our founding philosophy, which is that we don't deal with religion and state. Uh, we don't deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, we don't deal with issues that are already being dealt with uh, by other organizations. What would you say? So, so why don't you deal with uh, religion and state? For, and for those... Uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are going to be based abroad and some are going to be more familiar with Israel than others. Religion and state and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I, I think you could say are probably the two most divisive and hot button issues in Israeli society, right? Correct. So, so why won't you get involved with them, in, with those issues? Because we deal with social economic issues, um, specifically with a the, with the specific uh, focus on the economic. The idea is that Although there is an enormous amount of disagreement uh, within Israeli society, both vis-a-vis religion and state issues and vis-a-vis uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there is a broad consensus uh, regarding social economic issues. Uh, and we try and find the issues or address issues that are part of that base consensus. And I'll give you an example. Nobody, uh, whether you are, uh, you know, Jewish, Arab, uh, settler, you know, you come from Tel Aviv, nobody wants to uh, retire and find out that, uh, in essence, they lost another 2% of their pension, which they didn't realize because they were paying uh, hidden management fees, you know, that weren't transparent to them as the, uh, as the, as the customer, right? I mean, that's something 2% of uh, the growth and, savings and a of lot a of us lifetime are, is a huge amount of money. And a lot of everybody's us paid, uh, actually. I, I would just say to those, not, not a lot of this, we everybody, all, everybody, we that's it. Everybody and is currently fees. paying uh, hidden fees. Right. And it's like, once and this is one of the, this is actually, once a year, the insurance guy comes so it, to our office. He says, sign this. Nobody knows what they're signing. No one knows what they're reading. It's like you really have to have an education as to how to choose your, your policy, which the majority of people don't. And it seems to be just one of these subjects where it kind of feels like it's, okay, what am I signing? Okay, yeah, whatever. Everyone signs this. Sign it. And uh, So I'm actually talking about something that's even worse than never. that. Okay, when, the, when, you're, when your insurance agent comes to your office and he says to you, he signs right, he tells you about two types of interest, okay? He tells you about how much, how much interest you're going to pay on your monthly deposits and how much interest you're going to pay on, on what, you, you know, what, you have, you, what you have built up, right? Your principal, okay? Which you build up a lifetime. Now, it turns out, and unknown to the majority of public, I actually didn't realize this before I started working at Lobby 99, that in addition to those management fees, the company that's managing your pension is actually paying management fees to other companies, subcontractors, okay, who are investing your pension. And then they are rolling, as we would say in Hebrew, they are rolling those management fees back onto you, okay? And at least the management fees that you pay uh, regarding both the monthly deposits and regarding your total principal, that at least appears in your annual report, okay? These, these what they call the hidden management fees, they don't appear anywhere. And if you don't have a background in finance, you have no idea that this exists until you pull your pension when you retire and you discover that it's 2% less than what appeared. This was actually one of our one of our very big campaigns. We've been working on it for two years, and I'm happy to report that in a recent Knesset a committee decision, it was decided for the first time that uh, the insurance companies will be required to report what they call hidden management fees. How did they get uh, to to the public? How did how did they get away with this? Over, I mean, that seems. Well, let me let me take a step back. How many? 
Oh, Israel is a work in progress. I know. You know, this, is, this, this, is, know this is part of improving that work. If we're talking just about these hidden fees, approximately how much money are we talking about per year? Per person. No, not per person. You're, how much of this is this for the account? Like, is it? Millions, millions. We, 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 estimate a, a, we estimate that it's uh, hidden fees for the entire economy annually could come up to 3 billion shekels. Wow. That's a, it's close to a billion. It's a lot of money. Right. Wow. 3 billion. Yeah, that, no, I said 3 billion. dollars if, if we just yes. translate it. Yes, close that. to a billion dollars. Yes, yes. We estimate that it's about 3 billion, that the entire market uh, of fees uh, annually in the country is about 3 billion shekels. So yeah, it's a lot of money. So, you know, this is one of those things where I ask, um, th- there's something very prevalent in Israeli society that, that anyone who's spent time here knows, and it's the, um, a loosely translated is, is to the, can I get away with it culture? Shitata matzliach. Shitata matzliach, right. Can I get away right. with it, right? Like you try to scam someone kind of gently, and if you get away with it, you get away with it. And if they call you out, okay, you called me out. Is there pressure from the, the finance, insurance, pension sector on the Knesset to maintain these hidden fees? Or is it just one of these kind of shitata matzliach, these like, let's see if we can get away with it until someone calls us out on it. Is there any forces in politics? It's, it's a complicated issue. Uh, it's both. And, and my expertise is not finance. There, there are arguments um, a, that the ability of the pension funds to invest in high-risk investments, uh, which have high management fees, which they are not interested in sharing with the public, uh, could pay off over time for the investor. Obviously, there are arguments, you know, opposite saying that, you know, placing public pension funds in high-risk investments, uh, which is another thing that we've dealt with a lot, uh, which is uh, pension funds that are using a public money and sends our pensions uh, to underwrite, uh, in this case, the gas deal, right? I don't know if you've been following the news, uh, but Yitzhak Tshuva, who's the head of uh, Delic Group, uh, who has gone through several refinancing uh, processes due to poor investments, uh, recently turned to Migdal, which is one of the big pension funds, and essentially asked to underwrite his losses with our pension money. Well, let's, uh, let's take a step back here. Borrow our pension money at at uh, at an attractive rate, um, and and then again, it begs the question: This is our pension money. Is is this really a good investment? Is this a safe investment? Obviously, each person can invest individually as they choose, and if you're a person who wants a high risk investment, then you know that's great. But but this is not the case. This is money people are counting on. This is money people can't afford to lose. And many people don't have 40 years to wait for, you know, the, the kind of, you know, if Tudor reorganizes finances in hopes that maybe at some point there'll be a profit. So, it's a big problem. Take, That's a big a issue that we've here. dealt with. Yeah, let's take a step back here, Rachel, for a second. Um, because, you know, I, when was it about a year or two years ago? So the you know, for those uh, listeners who aren't following Israeli economics on a regular basis, we discovered massive natural gas reserves off our coast, right? Uh, probably about a decade ago or so. I mean, massive to the point where I, I think we're the largest um, gas um, producer and maybe even soon exporter in the region right now in the Eastern Mediterranean. It's actually, actually, Egypt recently discovered a, uh, a much larger gas. Congratulations, yes. Egypt. Um, I 
This is one of those things where, where before Corona and before, you know, the, the 20 election cycles we had in the past year, um, this was a huge issue. And I remember a lot of people were out in the streets about this. There was a lot of public um, um, debate, uh, heated debate about this. So maybe, first of all, take us back. Uh, and what is the actual gas deal and um, the gas kind of issue? What are people upset about? What's the public upset about? And then how is Lobby 99? How are you guys trying to, to play within that game? I think people were upset about uh, the gas, I mean, for a whole number of reasons. There, there were uh, concerns uh, by, by various environmental groups uh, that the process of removing the gas was unsafe. Uh, there were concerns, um, there were a myriad of concerns. Our, our focus on it was, it was again, from the financial angle. Uh, and the issue was that this is a, our claim at least, is that this is a natural resource um, of the state of Israel, and therefore its citizens uh, should benefit from this natural resource in, in some form, right? Similar to, let's say, Norway, right? They have uh, large resources of, if I'm not recall, uh, natural gas, it's oil or it's natural oil. gas. What oil. Uh, oil. oil, right. And those money, that money was placed in a pension fund. Um, a giant for, public you know, pension fund. I think it's a few trillion correct. dollars, if I'm not mistaken. Right. They subsidize the, everything. Right. So that was the, exactly they subsidize everything. It's a good place to live. Um, and so th- that was one of the initial concerns. We, as Lobby 99, deal less with that angle, with kind of the macro, you know, uh, what they were calling it, the macro of how, how you know, these, the these resources, exactly, how these resources should be divided. Our concern at this point, at the time we did deal with it, but this is this is already four years. At the moment, our concern is the question of uh, of competition. Okay, gas is actually I don't know if you're aware, it's at an all time low. Okay, uh, in the U.S. in Europe, uh, they're paying between one to three dollars. Okay, per unit of natural gas. Okay, here in Israel, uh, we're actually buying natural gas from our own natural gas reserves. Okay, this is the electricity company when it creates electricity is buying natural gas from the reserves, which are Leviathan, Karish, Tamal, the the reserves that are off uh, a of the the names of the the Israeli waters. Those are the names of the fields, correct? Um, And we are paying between five to six dollars, okay, per unit. So we're paying and it begs the question: twice if, as much, we're paying more than twice as we're much. We're paying two to three times, price. right? Correct. So, How for example, if we were to what? How can that be? How can that be? That's that's therein therein lies the question. That is the question that we at Lobby Ninety Nine are trying to address. Why is it that we are buying natural gas reserves that we're not importing uh, from Egypt or from Europe? Right? They don't have to go through some long, complicated pipeline. We're buying them from our own in-house reserve, and we're paying two to three times uh, what the rest of the world is paying. And the answer, quite simply, is that there just isn't competition. Uh, in the 2015 uh, gas deal, essentially the two largest fields, okay, which are Karish and Leviathan, uh, were bought by the same partnership, okay, which is a partnership of Delek, which is the Israeli company, and Noble Energy, okay, which is an American mm-hmm. company, and they entered into a partnership to develop both of these fields, okay. Uh, in the 2015 well, the gas framework deal, uh, the Israeli government decided that they would have, and I'm simplifying, uh, a very complicated issue that was you know, debated for the course of years. Basically, what they decided was that these two companies 
could have a controlling, uh, own a controlling portion of each of these fields if they allowed free competition, okay, between the fields. And our argument in Lobby 99 is simply, you know, the, the answer is in the dollar signs. The fact that we are paying two or three times what we should be paying uh, for natural gas means that there isn't effective competition. And the expectation that the same company or different parts of the same company will compete with each other uh, effectively and that that will lower prices is a fallacy. Right. And therefore, we need to change the gas deal and create effective competition. Yes. So let's play devil's advocate for a second here. Um, if I'm in the, let's say, the gas industry, if I'm Chuva or Delic or one of these companies or Noble Energy, or if I'm the electric company, or if I'm in the government uh, on the side that passed this agreement, why would I say this is a good idea? Uh, I mean, if I recall some of the reasons I heard at the time from, from people in the government defending this deal was that it's really expensive to get to that gas. And so you have to take all that into account. I mean, what, play devil's advocate yourself for a second. It is, it is, it is expensive. There's no question that there are, that there are, uh, that there's, there's a lot of initial investments uh, that are required uh, in order to, uh, uh, in order to, Correct. you know, kind of these initial investments that you need to put in before you can start extracting the natural gas. Um, with that said, statistically, uh, the, the profits from extracting natural gas are much, much, much more than the initial investment. Um, and the statistic ability to hit, you know, a good reserve and be able to extract a significant portion rises as you control more fields. Um, so being that we have here, a two or three fields of differing sizes uh, and that the vast majority of these fields are being controlled by the same um, different parts of the same uh, conglomerate, it, it means you more or less have a slam dunk, right? The chances that the money is invested uh, at the beginning of the process in developing the ability to export, you know, to, to, uh, to attain, to export uh, the gas, the chances that that initial investment will be lost are relatively low. Okay, so it's, 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 a, it's a good investment. Uh, in fact, if you look at a Noble Energy stock, it's, it's a Noble Energy as a company is actually losing money around the world. Their one very good investment is here in Israel. Uh, this is the, uh, yeah, this has really been the cash cow uh, for, uh, for the American, for this American energy company that's gone through a lot of financial difficulties, uh, in the past year. And that's, if you notice the news, Chevron is currently taking an interest, uh, in buying, uh, out a significant portion, if not all of noble energy. And the big draw, uh, is the Israeli fields. So I'm trying, uh, they I'm are, they're real the cash cow investment. I'm trying to understand the process a little more here. So you said, you know, there are a lot of interest groups that were against, uh, the current deal, right? You said there were environmentalists. You said there were those who were pushing for a different uh, division uh, of the pie, so to speak. Um, and you guys weren't mm -hmm. playing that game. So are you coming with, uh, you, you as Lobby 99, are you guys coming with a, a preferred outcome or are you just calling for more oversight or to open up the gates? to? We would like the gas deal. I mean, 
we would in the long run we would like the gas deal to be revisited yes we would like the the grass framework deal of 2015 to be revisited uh and we would like the rights to mine the gas fields to be divided among more companies uh in order to create effective competition yes that's that's the long run the short term is all sorts of other you know other projects that we're working on not you know to this fact it's one of the most important things to know about lobby 99 is that we are not an organization that uh um, that uh, that campaigns for the sake of campaigning, right? We we don't create fkanot. Uh, um, we don't uh, protest letter writing campaigns, right? That's not. We're lobbyists, right? We're people who have come from the from the the system, as they say it. All of us have experience, whether in the public or the private sector, uh, with regulation, and we are trying to find uh, practical applicable solutions. You know what I'm saying? We would rather solve uh, part of the problem, right, than protest the entire problem, right? If we if we can find, you know what I mean, some solution, if we can uh, we can advance the issue, if we can create some sort of interim success uh, or bring a, some sort of interim dividend back to, you know, the Israeli public, then we're going to do it. We're not going to argue the, um, you know, kind of the theoretical framework of what should be, what could be, uh, simply because that's not practical. We're a practical organization, and that's kind of one of our founding uh, ethos. That's really interesting. I can give you a different example. Oh, so yeah. That's really interesting. Of another- saying, um, you're, you're saying basically here that, you know, you, you have the public interest in mind. You know, I, I'm, I also... Uh, came from the policy world, not like you in the Knesset. I came from kind of more national security policy kind of stuff. And uh, I personally, you know, for example, I'm watching now the protests that are taking you know place in the street. And I don't want to get into the sides of it, but I've never personally connected with protests. You know, I've always been kind of more of a uh, from the policy side of things. And and what you're saying is you're kind of, you know, you feel, a, a lot of people that had government experience in various places in the government realized that maybe you can influence things a lot better in this manner, even if it's less sexy, right? Uh, this is not people Correct. mass protests on the street. This is not social media campaigns. This is uh, doing that kind of difficult, um, you know, nitty gritty technical work. But at the end of the day, do you, do you think this better, better the apple in hand than two on the tree? That's our yeah. motto. Do you think this is more uh, effective in bringing about social change? Then I think both are necessary. I think I think both are necessary. Uh, there's no question that I personally uh, connect much more as someone who sat, you know, at the table in government. I connect much more to the to the policy side uh, than you know to the signs and to the protests in the streets, and and they achieve different purposes. But yes, I, I think that in the whole, uh, that the public is involved in the democratic process is important. Uh, both on a policy level and on a personal level uh, for, for, you know, members of the public. Um, and, they, and they both have value. There's no question that they both have value. They, they achieve different ends, but they both have great value. Well, let, me, let me for a second take a, take a step back and talk for, for a moment about the public. I think that there's a certain tendency in the public, whether it's in the United States or whether it's here in Israel, to not understand in depth policy issues and to not understand how things really function because they don't. Uh, and I think that there's a bad name that goes around for the for, for lobbyists in general. People think that lobbyists are in some sort of when you think of lobbyists, 
the average person is some sort of a knee-jerk reaction where he's like, oh, they're campaigning for big tobacco or they're campaigning for gambling or right. alcohol. It's crooked, or, right? There's it's some crooked. There's something wrong. They're, they're greasing the pockets of politicians. How does regular lobbying function in Israel and how... Uh, I, mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that, with that, <laughs> that assessment. I would simply say we're the counterweight. Right. Sure, sure. You know, that's, we're the counterweight to, to commercial lobbyists. Can you describe um, the world well, of commercial lobbying in Israel? Like, can you just give us a, kind of an, an overview of who, who is the big lobbyist? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I've never worked as a commercial lobbyist in Israel. Well, what are you up uh, But gener- what? What, what generally speaking, uh, in terms of... Uh, who's your competition? Right. Or is it competition? Who's our competition? Uh, no, our competition are, are, uh, are, are by, by far, for sure, our competition are commercial lobbyists. Uh, today in Israel, there are uh, three or four large uh, lobbying companies. Um, the first or the largest of them is a company uh, called Policy, uh, who that was founded in the 70s by uh, a man named Bols Kassante. He was an immigrant from the former Soviet Union and kind of founded uh, the 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 field uh, here in Israel. Um, but since then, it's expanded uh, exponentially. As I said, there are several large companies. Um, and in addition, many uh, large companies will also employ in-house lobbyists. Uh, generally, name is a uh, person who's in charge of the connection, managing the connection with the Knesset, with the government, regulation. You know, these are all words for uh, in-house lobbyists. And any self-respecting company will generally both have a retainer-based contract with a lobbying firm. Sometimes lobbying firms we call the strategic advisory firm, something along those lines. Um, and they will also have in-house lobbyists. And how does it typically work in terms of the lobbyist will go to a Knesset member that they know and they will, you know, advocate for a certain policy. They'll advocate for a certain agenda. And beyond just the simple connection that a Knesset member may have with that person, you know, there's some sort of a, a what's their interest in listening and how, uh, how does lobby 99's model um, compete with that system if if we're talking about seven thousand members and it's you know you're you're up against uh you're up against if, giant corporations right. with massive budgets so how are you guys competing it's very simple the, it's a two-part question really and one the question is one is why would an mk listen to a lobbyist right and b how do i get the mk to listen to me instead uh, of the commercial lobbyist. Uh, the answer to the second question is that i use the same tools that the commercial lobbyist does i'm simply better at it uh, the answer to the first question is that there is very few, in, in 10 years of experience in the Knesset, I have yet to meet a corrupt uh, member of Knesset. Perhaps I'm naive, um, but I have, what? That's good to yes? hear. That's encouraging. It is good to hear. No, it, it's really important to mention, to, to, to stress that the vast majority, uh, perhaps not all, but the vast, vast majority of members of Knesset from across the political spectrum, regardless of party, uh, come to the Knesset with a burning desire to, to serve the public uh, and the public good. Uh, what happens then is that there's a systems failure once they arrive at the Knesset. I have to remember that today we have we have 120 members of Knesset, okay, which is the number of members of Knesset we've had since the founding of the country. When the country was founded, right, we had a population of 
several million, right? Depends, you know, when exactly you make the call. But there's no question that that the the size the size of the population has you know quadrupled since the founding of the state of Israel, and uh, and we are still have those same 120 members. Now, if I proposed to you that we raise the number of MKs from 120 to 180, you would probably oppose it, right? You would say, no, MKs, they get these high salaries, right? They're living off the public purse. They're lazy. Why should I pay for more of them? Et cetera, et cetera, right? That's not, that's not going to be, it's going to be a hard sell. Uh, in the Israeli public, and you're going to hear things like "ochlechinam," right? You know, they they eat off at my expense. Um, but the truth is, is that we well, free lunchers exactly. But the truth is, is that we need more MKs. Uh, the amount of MKs we had when the state was founded, and the amount of MKs we have now, is simply not proportional. Now, you also have to keep in mind that there isn't in Israel. Uh, like there is in the U.S., a clear division of powers, i.e. the executive is drawn from the pool of the Knesset, right? So we have 120 Knesset members and at least 30 to 40 of them, right? Essentially, effectively, they retain official status as MKs, but they effectively leave the Knesset uh, in order to be ministers and deputy ministers, right? We're now in one of the largest governments, if not the largest government the state of Israel has ever seen, right, with 36 ministers and deputy ministers. And now it's a very significant, yes? Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, and for uh, those who are listening and maybe not watching the, the video clip, uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're trying to figure out the timing here with the uh, Zoom delays. Uh, so bear with us on that. Um, we'll, we'll come back uh, because of your, your very interesting Knesset experience, and we'll come back and try to understand some of maybe the uh, behind-the-scenes sausage-making of coalitions and how the Knesset works sure. and stuff. Um, but I want to stay on Lobby 99 for now. But, but that is one, so, of, those, so right. so this that is, is one of those things yes. where, um, you know, um, because MKs here are also ministers, right? So you can only do one job at a time. And so if you're in, and that's kind of why they introduced this uh, Norwegian law, and I'd love to come back and talk about all that here. Um, I'm curious to know... Um, it was just if we if we return yeah, to the please. question of why uh, why lobbyists uh, listen to MKs, and, and the answer is is or the opposite why MKs listen to lobbyists. Uh, the answer is is very simple: is that in the end you only have about eighty MKs, okay, who are active parliamentary members, i.e., who are present in uh, committee sessions and the committees is where you know the legislation is 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 sliced and diced and uh and created in essence right that's kind of the small forum uh where where both whether it's funding or or anything where all coalition where all legislation coalesces okay any given uh right exactly with the magic happens any given mk is member of five six or seven coalitions at a time Okay, which all operate simultaneously. Okay, which means that theoretically the same person is obligated at the same time to be in a meeting on banking reform and then a meeting on how we create accessibility for the handicapped and then a meeting about, you know, the welfare state and youth at risk. Okay. Uh, and then a meeting about uh, the failures of, uh, of monopolistic practices of import companies. Okay. Now, you may be the most brilliant MK, right? You know, you served uh, in an elite army unit, you got an 800 on your psychometry, you went to the best schools, and after that you got a degree from Harvard. 
you still will not be able to create expertise in all of these issues within the timeline that's available, okay? You're going to be invited to critical every day. It's, it's not once a week. It's every day you're going to be invited to five or six meetings that are dealing with critical reforms in vastly different parts of the government um, or of the country. The, you're going to receive uh, information, the background information, the basis for those, uh, for those debates uh, in the best case scenario, two or three days beforehand, generally the night beforehand or the morning of, if not during the event itself. Um, and there's simply no way for you to to effectively make decisions. There's just there's an information gap. And that's where the lobbyists come in. Lobbyists are people who uh, have experience, who understand the issues, who have staff uh, at their disposal, right, who can uh, write the one pager or the one paragraph, right, that explains to the MK uh, exactly what is going on and what are the issues so that the MK doesn't feel like an idiot uh, during the debate. Nobody likes to feel like an idiot, let's be honest. Um, and gives them questions uh, that they can ask. And in fact, one of the ways that lobbyists uh, receive bonuses in this country is that if MKs ask questions, right? They remember all most uh, Knesset uh, uh, meetings are, are televised um, on the Knesset channel. And if the MK is holding uh, a, a document with the logo of the lobbying company, uh, the lobbyist gets a bonus. And if they read the questions off, the lobbyist gets another bonus. Um, and that's the way the system works. It's no, no, no one here is a bad guy, especially not the MK. They're doing the best that they can. Yeah. But, uh, but there's an information gap and the lobbyist is offering them the expertise uh, and the information. Remember, the Knesset also switches. In each given Knesset, about 50% of the members are what we call new members, right? They don't have the background. And then here comes a lobbyist. This lobbyist has been a senior advisor or an MK themselves in many cases over the last decade, right? They know the system from front to back. They know how it works, how you create a bill, who you need to talk to, right? How you fast track it. What are the important issues? How do you talk to the cameras? This new MK, they have a lot of good intentions, but they have no expertise. But doesn't, um, to be fair though, doesn't the MK also have a staff that is comprised of advisors that are experts on particular issues that are unpaid sources of information that can guide the MK as to the, the merits of a certain issue? I think, I think MKs only have unpaid. No, they have three. They have two unpaid. A few years ago, a third person was added. They have three staff members. If you take a member of Congress, for example, um, member of Congress has something between 15 to 20 staff members. Wow. Okay. And an and, and MK here has three. Okay. And they used to have two. When I started, 10 years ago, this is not, you know, ancient history, there were two. Uh, a few years ago, it was expanded to three. Uh, and if a, for example, a member of Congress is the head of an important committee, they'll have additional staff for that, okay? Uh, here, if an MK is the head of a committee, they'll have the professional staff of the committee, the secretariat of the committee, the, you know, the um, legal advisor of the committee, but they won't have additional staff themselves, uh, that can, you know, review, uh, you know, public pleas or uh, requests for meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it, it's not a popular issue. There's right. no question that you would have a hard time, you know, passing a fourth uh, person. But no, I, I, the, I, the Knesset is woefully understaffed. So what about if, you know, um, they gave, in, instead of additional Knesset members, 
And of course, you know, there's a whole issue of let's limit the size of the, the, the ministers in the government so that Knesset members can actually do their job as legislators, um, which is something we can circle back to later. But what if everyone had additional staffers, right? So for every committee you're in, you get a staffer for that committee. Like, uh, is there any kind of thinking or talk in that direction so that you have, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to be an expert on multiple subjects. And I know a lot of MKs come into the Knesset with expertise on a given subject, whether it's the environment or, you know, religious laws or whatever it is that that's their desire. Um, but has there ever been any kind of talk or thinking to expand the number of advisors you get so that you can increase, you know, your expertise that way, which would also be probably so cheaper? The, the number of advisors was expanded from two to three. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there isn't a current proposal to expand it from three to four. Uh, but even expanding the advisors is only a limited solution because in the end, all of these sessions happen simultaneously, right? And one person, to the best of my knowledge, can only be present in one place at one time, at least within the, uh, the limitations of our scientific knowledge at the moment. So it, it, it's a limited solution. There's, there's a problem. There's what we call a systems failure. And we in Lobby 99 enter into that systems failure, as do commercial lobbyists. Okay. And we offer um, MKs, the benefit of our expertise, right? These are issues, for example, pensions, the gas deal, uh, the issues I personally deal with, which is the import monopolies and health. These are issues that I have been dealing with, right? Uh, you know, for, in my case, uh, because I, I recently joined here, I've been dealing with for the past year, but, you know, we have expertise of four or five years. Uh, what are some of the issues? the ability to draw upon. What are some yes. of the issues that you guys have on your plate right now? Like what are the, you know, the top, I don't know, five, six, seven issues that you guys are dealing with? Sure. Uh, we deal with uh, municipalities, uh, uh, corruption uh, in, in, uh, at the municipal level. We deal with public transportation. Uh, we deal, as I said, with the cost of living and import monopolies. We deal with uh, transparency in general, uh, which is a, a topic in and of itself. Uh, we deal with uh, the financial aspects uh, of, uh, of the health system. Um, and we deal with uh, the pension funds and, and insurance funds. Those are two separate issues, but often they have an overlap. Uh, and our bread and butter is what they call here a honshuton, which is uh, the connections uh, between uh, the different halls of power, between those you know senior members of the private sector of the business world uh, and senior members of the public, and uh, and uh, ensuring that those connections uh, are both public and they don't uh, undermine the public interest. So you, you mentioned, um, you know, something that, that uh, is encouraging, right? That Knesset members are not corrupt, that you've, you, in your 10 years, you're not aware of any no. like openly corrupt Knesset members. But, it, it, you know, where is the line? Because lo- lobbying is, is a legal thing and it's a legitimate thing and you guys are, you know, took that tool for yourselves. So where does that line fall between getting convinced to work uh, for a Knesset member, getting convinced to do something in the favor of one of these lobbies, um, which doesn't seem to be in the public interest. Okay, maybe it's for the elites or for, for certain uh, corporate you know, interests versus corruption. Where would you put that line? I mean, is that something that you can demarcate? Uh, it's not something that you can demarcate clearly. What you can do is you can encourage transparency of interests. Uh, our first um, our first achievement as Lobby 99 was passing what's called the Lobbyist Bill, 
um, the, the, the initial bill, the bill that most people know about, is that people, members uh, of you know, official registered lobbyists, when they arrive at the Knesset, right, they have to wear an orange uh, string attached to their name tag, which readily identifies them as a lobbyist, okay? So that existed before uh, we came, but, but that was it. That was the one and only uh, restriction that there was on lobbyists. Uh, but they could go into the, uh, you know, the research center of the Knesset, okay, and they could give them all sorts of, you know, pre-made research papers that the Knesset would then adopt uh, and send out as their own. They could go into the lunch area of the Knesset. They could wander kind of freely and they could go in and out of committee uh, meetings. And one of the first things we did, um, which didn't exist, was to require any lobbyist who was present in a committee meeting to sign in and to state who they're representing. Mm -hmm. Okay, which seems like a really simple thing, but it didn't exist. And if you weren't physically present in the room, you wouldn't see the lobbyists, right? The lobbyists sat quietly passing notes um, on on the second row, right? So you, if you've ever been in a committee uh, session here in Israel, the committees are conducted around long oblong tables. At the head sits the committee head, and next to him uh, sits the uh, the legal advisor and uh, the professional staff of the committee. Near him on both sides, on to his uh, left sit the MKs, to his right sit the government officials, and at the end of the table sit the public interest, uh, you know, groups. Okay, and the lobby sit in a second row of seats. So you could have a committee meeting where there were three or four uh, people who were present, you know, let's say one person from the government, two MKs, and the, and, the, uh, and the legal advisor. And in that room would be 40 lobbyists, okay, sitting around the table, right? But, but they don't ever speak for the record. And if you don't speak for the record, it was as though you would never existed. Yeah, and so, there, so their influence was invisible. Uh, to the public uh, citizen. And I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the uh, bills that I was involved in advancing uh, when working uh, in the Knesset uh, was what they called Chavat Bodedim, or, or farmland. It's, it's basically it's a question of, of um, a encouraging uh, Israelis to uh, take hold of farmland in the Negev, okay? And it's it's an issue that has really no money. It's an ideological question. Um, you can pro, you can be against. There are a lot of different issues. It, it's not so interesting at the moment uh, whether that was an effective or not effective policy. But the point for this is that when I entered uh, the debate, I saw five lobbyists sitting uh, in the back of the room, okay? Now, I happen to know who they are, because right, I've worked with them, so I, I I know their names and I know who they represent, and uh, and they represented Telephone, Cellcom, Orange, uh, and Golan Telecom. Okay, so tell me, what does that tell you? The major cell antennas. The major cell antennas. Right. right. What that tells me when I see them is that they are here advancing, right, this bill which creates, you know, encourages uh, farming in the Negev because they hope to zone an antenna on one of these farms, okay? Now, and that antennas, obviously, cellular antennas are major money, right? And, um, and, and nobody would know that unless you were me, unless you recognize these people and you were physically present uh, in the meeting. And so one of our first uh, amendments was to force any lobbyist who was physically present in the room to register, 
Okay. And so then afterwards it says in the Knesset protocol, so-and-so was present and you represented so-and-so company. And that, that is a, a first and a very important step um, in creating, you know, greater transparency and ensuring that the public interest uh, is ensured. I would note on that note that currently the lobbyist law applies only in the Knesset, i.e. lobbyists can go to any government ministry. They don't need to identify as lobbyists. There's no orange string uh, when you go around the thing. And that's, for example, one of our goals is to expand the law so that it is a, so it's valid as well or applicable also in ministries. Um, and, and therefore, and there, and thereby, we believe that the public interest will be better served. Very, very interesting. I want to take a, uh, another step back. I remember, you know, Dan and I grew up in the States. I think you grew up in the States as well. Um, I did. When we were growing up, civics education was a big part of our, you know, uh, public school education. Okay. They taught you that you had, you, know, you lived in a state. This is how the government works. There's representatives. Representatives are elected by your district, they're sent to Washington, and then, you know, they advocate on your behalf in terms of the national government. Uh, and I'm, I'm really making this simplified, but we had a basic understanding of how our government worked. We may not have known the nuance and we didn't understand, you know, how the system was one way or the other working for us. Ba- or basic not. and romanticized. Sure. But there was a basic yeah. and romanticized understanding on the part of the population as to how this all functioned and how it worked. And I feel, and, and I don't have any data or empirical evidence to state this, but I feel that the average Israeli that's not involved in the world of policy or politics doesn't really understand how government here works and functions and has a critical, uh, 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 and is critical about the process because he or she may feel that it's overtly corrupt and uh, controlled by you know issues and, and, and positions and parties and entrenched people and, you know, how, I guess the question is, is this an issue in Israel? Uh, Do we have a large amount of public participation in in political discourse in this country, in your opinion, or do we do we lack behind other Western democracies in that in that regard? Uh, Well, I mean, it really depends how you measure it. They do teach civics here. Uh, It is a mandatory uh, uh, high school course. Uh, so, I mean, I would argue that in terms of civics education, you probably get the same uh, level of education here as in the U.S., and uh, and you probably have the same level of misunderstanding uh, between, as you said, the romanticized versions of the civics and between, you know, how, you know, you actually cut the sausage uh, of legislation and government working. With that said, um, in the U.S., you have obviously, you have a, a representative democracy. Right, which is radically different than the model we have here in Israel, which is that you have a congressman uh, in this case and a senator to a lesser extent who are responsible for representing you personally uh, based on you know where you live. Right, it's a geographic uh, in division of representation. Here we have party lists. Right, so there's no person who really represents me as a resident of this area, right? There is maybe a party who represents me as someone who adheres to a certain philosophy, as someone who sees themselves as part of a certain political camp or ethnic camp. Um, but there isn't someone, you know, there isn't, there's no one who's directly answerable to me, the citizen. Um, and that's, there's no question that that is a, a drawback of, uh, of the Israeli model. And that's, and is also a large part of the kind of the vacuum that we at Lobby 99 are, are coming to fill. Um, with that said, on the other hand, we do have very high uh, statistics in terms of voter turnout uh, here in Israel. 
uh, our voter turnout and really up until the second intifada was one of the highest in the Western world. It was almost 80%, which is, I mean, it's, it's astronomic. In Lobby 99, we, we try and hit 80% uh, in our biannual uh, votes. And I can tell you, it is a lot of work to get 80% of the people. And all they have to do, they don't even have to leave their house, right? All they have to do is send an SMS back or a WhatsApp back, you know, and tell us which, you know, which topic they prefer. Those are very, very high levels. They, it did draw, it's true. Uh, there was a certain, was a large wave of disenfranchisement uh, after the second intifada. And it's now slowly climbing. Uh, again, to my best of my knowledge, in the last elections, it was in the mid to high 60s. Uh, was, uh, but that's still a high higher. number. Yeah, it was, we do. It was have, even higher. You cut the, it, it across the seventy percent. I think so. So, so across the seventy percent mark. And um, even, and again, I don't remember yeah. exactly. And even Arab yeah. vote uh, historically high, um, which which the the Arab vote was also historically high. Yeah, no, but I was referring to the kind of the general vote, and and in the U.S., the voter turnout is much, much, lower. much lower. Sure. Um, so again, you know, there there are different ways of judging. Um, you know, how, how much the public participates in the democratic process. Uh, and all of them are important. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that there's something unique about Israel that allowed uh, for, for Lobby 99's model to, um, to emerge here as the first place in, in, in the world where, where a crowdfunded public lobbying firm existed? And I think, you know, we've been talking about this for, for what, a good half an hour more. This is a groundbreaking thing. I right. mean, this is, this is a really groundbreaking model uh, that there's a crowdfunded public lobbying firm to go after or, or to try to counterbalance the corporate lobbyists. Um, this is huge, right? This doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. I mean, we said it in the intro, but... To the best of our knowledge, it doesn't exist anywhere in the world. Uh, Lino, our CEO, uh, recently lectured about it at the University of Chicago uh, in the U.S. and was invited to lecture precisely for that reason, because it's, it's a unique economic model. It is. Um, that to yeah. our best of our knowledge has, has yet to be implemented. Though there are other places that are interested in implementing it, has yet to... To, to spread, yeah, it's but it is what's it's in the world of of you know Airbnb and, and Uber and kind of all these these uh, kind of crowd sharing or, or whatever the the model is called um, economic or political participation models. This is now a public crowd funded shared political participation model. This is this is brilliant. Uh, I mean, I think there's no other way to describe this. I think it's really interesting. Uh, as someone, as as you know, someone who's lived both in the U.S. and in Israel, I, I noticed that among American Jews, at least, there's often a complaint that Israelis are not very good philanthropists. Um, you know, Americans uh, donating is a large part. What Israel What'd does you say? not? Israel does not have a. We, I mean, Israelis give tzedakah, right? We give charity on a small scale, but the concept of large scale philanthropy. Of, of established philanthropic families. And, and uh, that's a relatively new concept in Israel, right? It's, it's, it is a relatively new concept. In Israel. I would argue, as I've always argued, that Israelis volunteer time yes. uh, and not money. If you go, you know, there are an enormous, enormous nonprofit sector here in Israel where people volunteer to spend their time as coaches for youth at risk, uh, giving out food to the elderly, right? And it kind of comes from that ethos of service that begins with military service, right? Okay. So Israelis, you know what I'm saying, maybe they won't donate, 
um, in the same way that, let's say, the standard American family, right? Now, we're not talking about the big philanthropic funds, but even just the average American Jewish family who has some connection to their synagogue, to their school, right, will donate money. You have your Super Sunday drive, right? And people get 50 bucks, $18, $100, right? Giving is is part of belonging to the community, right? And in Israel, that's that's the concept is different, right? In Israel, you give your time in order to belong to the community as opposed to giving money, right? I live in a Yishuv Kilati, uh, right? So it's a, I don't know how you would translate that, but a, uh, you know, a pre-planned community. A, a cooperative community, right? And it's not a kibbutz. Uh, we don't have any sort of joint ownership, but, uh, but it is jointly managed, right? And the expectation is that uh, at least one member of each household, one of the parents, will give some portion of their time, whether it's to the educational committee or to the environmental committee or to the budgeting committee, right? Each person gives their expertise, right? And, and otherwise, the, the, the system simply wouldn't work. So, so Israelis do give time on an exponential uh, level. I, I think that this is new in the sense that it's an ability for Israelis to give money. Um, and, and what helps is that A, they have, first of all, it's not easy. Okay. Uh, as we say, the vast majority of the way that we bring in new members, at least up until the age of Corona, uh, was parlor meetings. Okay. Uh, and as I would say, you know, sitting in, uh, you know, endless, uh, living rooms of, uh, of people. In fact, that's one of our commitments. It's important to note is that we are an apolitical organization, obviously. Um, but more than that, we, because we believe in participatory democracy, we are committed to coming, uh, to arriving in person anywhere in the country from, you know, uh, from, from Kiryat Shmona until Elat. Uh, and doing parlor meetings for 20 people. And the idea is, and during that time, we explain how the government really works and why you need us and kind of what sort of value uh, you work. It's both educational for the people who listen, and obviously it's a pitch um, to join us. And when we do these meetings, it, you're amazed, right? I mean, the average Israeli will go, it, without thinking twice, you'll you'll buy, you know, you'll go to Roma and you'll buy a coffee and you'll buy a croissant, and you just spent 15 shekels, right? But to, to do a lot keva, of five shekels, you know, a month, which is a sum you're never going to even realize it's coming off your credit card, is really hard. Almost okay? like a <laughs> What? Almost like a What'd hidden fee. Almost like a hidden fee. Almost fit. like a hidden fee. Well, my, 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 my partner uh, and CEO, Lino, likes to say, you know, Israelis are always like, uh, you know, they're like single Tel Avivian. You know, they can do the one night, but they, they can't commit, you know, beyond that. <laughs> That's very difficult for them. So true. And, uh, it's very true, right? And so that's, you know, saying they're willing to, and people will open up their purse, they'll say, I'll give you a hundred shekel donation. And I'll say, I, I don't want your hundred shekel one-time donation. Give me 10 shekels every month, become involved, right. become part of it, right? And I am convinced that you will see the value of my work. And the angel will be giving me a hundred shekels a month. I don't want the one time, right? That's and perfect. in fact, you can donate to, to Lobby 99 on a one-time basis, but that doesn't give you voting rights, Whenever right? I if you donate one shekel a month, Right. Whenever I get whenever I get approached by charities, I always actually say that I say, I'll give you a hundred, hundred, two hundred shekels, three hundred shekels, just leave me alone. Exactly, right. And they're like, no, exactly because right. Uh, no, sadly, because everybody in this country is a post-trauma from countries like hot, you know, from companies like hot when you know you signed up for your internet and then it took you three years, right? And like seventy-two hours of phone right. calls in order to disconnect, right? 
So nobody, like the last thing you want to give is anybody your credit card uh, information. I mean, it's, it's, it's a deep trauma. So A, we commit to anyone. It's a one click, right? You want to leave, you go to our website, you click, you are automatically disconnected within 24 hours. We will call you and ask you why you disconnected, but you'll be disconnected first. You'll be disconnected before the phone call, not after the phone call. Let me ask you if I may a question, Rachel. Um, you know, the, Please. the sort of barrier to entry into this entire system is like technological literacy. You have to be able to use a computer. You have to be able to understand, you know, the, you know, the concepts Smartphones. And, and to engage with it. Yeah. So your membership and people that want to join, they're people that are in that, you know, they understand, they find that appealing and they can engage with their, with their computer basically, or their devices. What, if anything, can you say, you know, does that, does that tend to attract a certain type of a person? Does that tend to skew more right, center, left, or, 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 or you know, what, if anything, can you say about, you know, which demographics are more engaged with Lobby 99? For example, do you have uh, the Haredi public involved in Lobby 99 who is not on Facebook and who's not, you know, using smartphones? All Haredi more on Facebook. They all have internet. <laughs> And they have smartphones. Any, anybody who buys that they, is a sucker. They all have televisions and they all have, uh, they're all connected. They, in fact, I would, I would argue that the Khalidim are really are the best MKs in, in terms of how they, they you know, ruthlessly they represent their public. Sure. Uh, and they have a very, very uh, uh, keen understanding of the Haredi street. Uh, and if you see Haredi media outlets have, have become an enormous part of that conversation, right? Chadri Chadarim uh, or uh, Kikar Shabbat, uh, which are, you know, the major Haredi internet uh, sites and news outlets. And obviously they're effective because people are reading them. And if people are reading them, they're on computers. Right. But uh, never sides, um, I would say that, you know what, I really don't have information actually has how, you know, you would divide up our membership. My guess is the vast majority of people uh, would be, um, we're on political orientation, I really have no idea, but but they would be kind of a, people who live in the center of the country, right, who are of a so, certain socioeconomic level. Um, and I would say that that's very, you know, chaval, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, we are in a constant uh, attempt to break out of those uh, barriers uh, and do, you know, events um, in the periphery, over the green line, for the Haredi public, 100%. Um, and, and again, then that's our commitment. We will go anywhere in the country, uh, so long as there are 20 people, and speak to any group. Uh, the idea is that, indeed, is that our work, you know, is beneficial to all. Even during Corona, um, we can go. Yeah. To, we can get twenty people. Can get... Zoom, Zoom sessions, Zoom sessions. No, don't do it now. Corona's really kind of killed that model. There's, there's no question about it. Uh, and we've, we've really reverted much more to, uh, to Facebook, uh, and to Twitter, and to you know, corresponding with the public vis-a-vis uh, -vis media. Uh, we tried Zoom. Zoom just really isn't such an effective model. There's nothing. There's nothing that beats someone standing in your living room and you know being there, being able to talk to them, you know, and interact with them in an unimmediate level. Zoom is really a kind of a killer uh, in terms of lecturing. But uh, but you know, one day Corona will will pass, and uh, you know, we'll be able to leave the phases of Facebook and uh, you know, and enter the real world again. It's funny. Uh, I was. Uh, really. I hope Corona will pass. I was sitting. Uh, I went to lunch um, at the. My office is in the Hebrew University. I don't work for the university, but my office is there, and I happened to sit down for lunch with a friend who's a scientist, and um, he, you know said, "What are you doing these days?" He's like, "We came up with a cure for Corona." 
I said, what? So uh, he started telling me the whole thing. Hopefully we'll get him on the show in the near future. Uh, you, you mentioned something really interesting about community participation and, and you know, you want the uh, monthly payment as opposed to the one-time donation and getting people involved. I was in a really interesting kind of um, digital conference. I mean, it was digital because of Corona, not because they wanted it to be digital about the future of the Jewish people, but it's something that could really be applied to all of society. And that's, you know, how do you create a common sense, a shared sense of responsibility and mutual destiny? It's something that I found that exists in Israel more than in America, for example. It's hard for me to speak to other countries because I don't know other countries as well as Israel and the in the United States. But something you know that I noticed that's really missing in the U.S. right now is that shared sense of identity, shared sense of destiny, a shared sense of background. There's so much polarization, and here we have a lot of polarization. It's probably greater than ever before, uh, or maybe you know my age is showing, and I just don't remember times before. Uh, you know, before now. Um, but uh, is there something in this that leads to maybe a new model of participation in society? Uh, you know, you mentioned the community you live in, that it's not enough to just live there and pay taxes and then get some kind of services, but you want commitment. Um, you know, in, in my one of my things I'm doing, I'm writing about new models of Jewish community and life in the world and the concepts of small niche cooperative communities. I think you even mentioned the word cooperative at one point uh, takes off. So is this leading us to kind of a new um, concept of society, politics, and political and societal participation? Uh, Hopefully would be my answer. Uh, Definitely hopefully. Uh, I I think it is creating something new. I think there's a sense of community among the members of Lobby 99. We update uh, the members uh, weekly with a weekly newsletter as to what exactly uh, their money bought this week. You know, we're very much aware that this is, you know, people are, this is not some, you know, esoteric tax. This is money that people are giving us that they could be using for something else. And they want to make sure to see that sort of return on investment. Uh, and in addition, we, many of the people who first become members often then uh, become volunteers uh, or support staff, uh, you know, unpaid in some capacity, activists, um, you know, in some way, maybe organize uh, parlor meetings at their homes, you know, after they attended one at a friend's home. So yes, there, there definitely is uh, a contingent of community. And um and we see, especially now during the corona, where people are very frustrated uh, with their elected leadership, we've definitely seen a spike uh, in our membership. And beyond the spike in the membership, we also see a spike in the people who identify as members. As so that's kind of a badge of honor. Here, I'm doing something that even in some small way is helping to make, you know, is part of the solution, is helping to make this country a better place. Um, and I would note that uh, all of the members of, uh, of Lobby 99 uh, are uh, young parents. Uh, mostly, uh, we tend towards women. Uh, obviously, we don't, uh, we don't discriminate against men. We simply choose the best candidates, uh, and they tend to be women. Um, and they are all uh, young, uh, relatively. I don't know if I can call myself young anymore, but relatively you young. Yes, you can. Uh, there you go. So anyway, we're gonna all, we're gonna all be young, young forever. Exactly. It, I, do, I do think that we're aging. It's interesting. Yes. Right, right before I came to uh, 
to uh, to Dan this morning to do this podcast, I was showing my wife your you know Lobby Ninety Nine's website, the the Hebrew website, and one of the things that mm-hmm. she first we actually we just we recently put up an English website. It's a one pager. It's a one pager. Uh, it's a beginning, but uh, but yeah, after when Linong, our CEO, went to uh, the University of Chicago, we took advantage of uh, the momentum, uh, kind of to throw together a one pager, at least kind Absolutely. of you know. Give our, you know, our two that's our, 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 you know, our kind of our, our bottom line to the international community. Right. So that's so, also available. So the the Hebrew website is interesting because you know the the, the one pager that's in English doesn't show the composition of of the team. Uh, you know who's who's who. No. In the Hebrew website, you have this great page where where it uh, you know shows everybody in the organization, or at least the leadership in the organization, and and you know the brief. Oh, it's everybody. That, that's the entire organization. Okay. Yeah, there's 12 people there, and they're all up there. They're all the pictures of that. There's nobody else. Uh, so one of the things that she first noticed about your team was that, uh, you know, women comprise a really large portion of the staff. Um, and that's mm-hmm. something that, in my experience, working in, you know, the world of organizations, uh, Jewish organizations and dance, or, you know, experience as well, seems to be the opposite of what usually is the case. As is, you know, usually Also the op- in the world of finance. The world of yeah, yeah, being that we, world. we deal primarily with financial issues yes it's it's so, women are so, by, by far the minority when you come to debates right. about you know pension and uh, gas refunds and etc cetera, etc cetera. yes so my wife's question and i guess kind of everyone's question that sees that is like was that by design is that intentional or is it it just so happened to be uh uh, no, as I said, we we, we hire the best candidates, uh, and if they happen to be women, then and then you know that's that's great. Uh, but we also hire men. Uh, we recently hired uh, an economist uh, who uh, spent the last ten years uh, at a senior level of the Bank of Israel, uh, who is an incredible economist. Honestly, I really don't understand what he does, but there's a lot of numbers, and those numbers mean something. I'm not a numbers person, but but I am assured that those numbers are very very important. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, kind of crunches data in a way. My background is as an attorney, and, you know, I don't have the ability to, to crunch numbers uh, the way he can. In fact, I think few people do. Um, but there's no question, this is in part of, you know, the founding of, the, of, of Lobby 99. It kind of sort of happened on the way. Uh, but there definitely is, uh, I believe we all are our young mothers. And uh, we do all believe that women, uh, and specifically mothers, can be an integral part of the political process. Um, and that that is, you know, being a mother is an advantage. Uh, rather than a disadvantage and sure. that it gives you a, and a father I would note as well yeah. you know this is not a uh, being a parent uh, and even though you, that's an enormous tax on your time right children are probably the world's most expensive hobby but um, but uh, regardless of that expensive very expensive hobby but um, and it, I, I have four children and a dog so I have you know a lot expensive um, both in terms of time and energy and tears yeah. But um, but the idea was that you could you could both be a parent and be part of an integral part of the political process. You could affect, you could change the political process and trying to tear down that kind of paradigm where it's either or, right? Either you're committed to your family or you're committed to your career. And you can't be influential uh, in terms of policymaking uh, unless, you know, you give up uh, on your family uh, in some sense or another. Obviously, it doesn't mean you don't need to ha- not have a family, but you're less present. Um, and, uh, for example, our weekly staff meeting uh, is from 10 to 2, and it's from 10 to 2 so that we can pick up our kids at 4 uh, from the Ganim. 
And although we work many hours uh, and many hours into the night, uh, the idea is that there's no reason uh, you can't, uh, with given enough flexibility, yeah, sure. you know, and a staff that's sufficiently talented, there's no reason you can't be present for your children every day from four to eight. I think, um, uh, I and think you know, arguing at a Knesset yeah. committee in the morning. I think cool. that I think that's absolutely right. I, I think that's absolutely uh, spot on. And um, you know, one one of the reasons why I left uh, my military career was because I saw that after a certain rank, um, you know, I left a, as a Rav Seren as a major, that if I wanted to really be able to compete, and and maybe I was just not good enough, you know. But I'm gonna leave that aside. Let's say I was. Um, to, I think you were. <laughs> I think he was. He was fine. To, to be able to get to those higher ranks, um, it was very clear to me that I would have had to take those kind of positions where you're working six, sometimes seven days a week, 10 to 15 hours a day, um, be able to take phone calls in the middle of the night. And I think, you know, this Corona time has shown us, um, and, and this is great, you know, that you guys are really trying to break that paradigm because there's no reason it should exist. Um, there's no reason someone have should choose between being a parent, an active parent in their child's lives, and um, and being able to uh, have a a thriving and influential career. And and too many times, you know, we, we have to choose. And I think the Corona time shows us that you know what, you can wake up, you can get some work done in the morning, take a break in the afternoon, and okay, go back to work after the kids are in bed or or whatever it is. But um, I think this or wake up at four in the morning. That's what I do. I work from uh, four four a.m. to nine a.m. Those okay. are my good hours. So I work till two a.m. That's my kind of way around this. Right. Um, you know, I like to sleep in in the morning. Um, but that's really fascinating. You know, I was going to say about the the women uh, in in power. If anything, also this Corona has shown us that those countries that have handled this uh, time period the most effectively are the ones run by by women. And I. It's hard to, to think of that as a coincidence, uh, as both as what those societies... No, I, I definitely agree. I, I think that, you know, when I when I first joined Lobby 99, I actually looked, I mean, I was in a period of transition and I considered a bunch of options. Uh, and one of the uh, refrains that kind of I heard over and over again was that, uh, you know what I mean, if you, if you want to receive a, you know, an influential or a high-paid position, and I was lucky enough to get those offers, um, they said to me, you know, if you want to be paid like a man, you have to work like a man. Um, you know, you get to see your kids nice. one afternoon a week, certainly Sunday, generally Sunday afternoons, because then the Americans, you know, aren't working. And I was, you know, interviewing for the various things that, you know, utilize my skills, both in government uh, and my language abilities. And I remember thinking to myself, that's ridiculous. Yeah, why? Why? That's ridiculous for a man. That's ridiculous for a woman. That's ridiculous for anybody. Um, and in beyond that, especially when I was interviewing for positions that, uh, you know, were kind of in the third sector or in government, uh, you know, positions where you needed a high level of motivation uh, in order to be effective. I, I said, I mean, my motivation is my children. I have my money on the table. I yeah. didn't need, you know what I'm saying? I moved to this country by choice. I am a grandmigrant. It came when I was 17. I have every, you know, shekel, every dollar, every cent that I own is invested uh, in my home here. Sure. I have four children whom I've given birth and raised here. And I have gambled everything that I have or ever will have on the belief that we can create here the best possible society. And therefore, I have the highest buy-in uh, possible. It is my future and my children's future that I'm affecting uh, through my work in Lobby 99. And, and that's sort of, 
uh, commitment, that sort of drive is, is not something you're going to find uh, unless you employ parents. And, right. uh, and yeah, that's definitely it's huge so part true. of our, uh, it's, it's not, it's not part of our, you know, our, our set philosophy, kind of something that, that came up along the way. Sure. Uh, but yeah, if, you know, if you can break down stereotypes uh, while, you know, while doing good work, then, uh, then all the better. Wonderful. So, um, you know, we, we've talked about affecting government and, and kind of the model of Lobby 99 is that you're taking what should be the public interest, right? The 99 is, is the 99% who aren't represented, right? The 99%. Yeah, yeah. that's the 99%. That's where it comes from. We had a guest uh, two weeks ago on our show, a former journalist. And, um, you know, one of the things that came up in that conversation was if so much of Israeli society can agree on so many issues, okay? And I'm leaving aside religion and state. I'm leaving aside the Palestinian issue. Why can't we get something done? Why can't we even get, you know, why do, why do we have to have three, possibly four elections within the course of, of a year and a half? Um, what's going on in this political system? So you, you spend a lot of time, um, you know, as, as we've mentioned here in the government, um, you know, as a advisor, senior though. advisor to, to an influential figure. Um, so, so what's going on right now? Why are we even talking about the possibility of fourth election? And what's going on with our political system that we can't seem to find stability, that we can't seem to, you know, there's protests in the street. Why can't we get by on some of these major issues that everyone seems to agree on, like healthcare or the education system or whatever, that um, you know, if we agree on them, then why can't we make progress on these issues? Um, so maybe take us into kind of your experiences from being in government and maybe it's the system, maybe, um, you know, why do we keep going to new elections? Why are coalitions so shaky? We'd love to just, you know, hear your thoughts about these kind of uh, matters. Uh, sure. I mean, well, first of all, I would say, I think, and perhaps again, I am naive, but I think that this, uh, this country is a resounding success. It used to be much, much worse, uh, both in terms of the protest and in terms of the problems, right? I mean, we, we don't remember it now, but Begin marched on the Knesset, right? And it wasn't clear whether that was going to be a peaceful protest or that, that was going to be an armed coup. Uh, we forget that there were, you know, uh, gangs that, you know, uh, gangs, groups, uh, you know, that were associated with various aliot and uh, various ethnic groups uh, in the 70s and 80s that had armed uh, shootouts uh, with the police. You know, we forget that there was hyperinflation of 400%. Wow. Uh, you know, in the late and 80s. The so it's been worse. As I always say to everyone who says, you know, that the house of cards is, is falling, it has been worse and we have weathered it, you know, uh, and, uh, in, and, and we have created here uh, in a country with, a, for example, compared to the U.S., right, a, has a, a much higher, you know, a GDP per capita. We have created here a, uh, a national health, a public national health care system, uh, which is the envy of the world. Uh, even in Canada, where they do have a very lauded health care system, for example, it doesn't cover prescriptions. Um, so, you know, there, if you get an, you know, your kid gets an antibiotic, you're still out 200 bucks or whatever the fee may be, you know, a significant amount of money, unlike here. And I remember for me as an immigrant, that was one of my first uh, eye-opening experiences. I mean, I remember uh, as a child, I worked for, uh, I worked for, I was born to, uh, two parents uh, who were uh, self-employed or didn't work in jobs that were uh, sufficiently uh, high-end in order to, uh, to merit health care. And therefore, we didn't have health care. 
And I think that's the story of, of a vast majority of sure. Americans, right? You know, if you, if something broke, right, you went to the patient first, which is similar to the tail end here. And if not, you just survived, you know, you, you, you know, you called your uncle's friend something and you told him I have a problem with my throat, right? Can you give me a prescription for, for strep? And then you saved the yeah. extra prescription so you could give it to the next kid down the line. I mean, that was the way I grew up, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the streets were not paved with gold and we were not, you know, uh, you know, middle or even upper middle class. Um, and here, I mean, I remember it was one of the first things I was amazed at is that everybody goes to the doctor all the time, right? I mean, your kid sneezed, you take him to the doctor. Your kid sneezed again, you take him back to the doctor. I mean, why not, right? The doctor costs like 75 cents a visit. So I would think it's funny. Yeah. What you just said is really funny because it resonates with something that happened to me at the beginning of, of the COVID crisis. I was going Go to the doctor it. to just, you know, check up on myself. Like I need to make sure that everything is good, that I, you know, my, my, my levels are good. I wanted to see where my baseline was. And I would go for so many things that finally the doctor called me one day on the phone. I had a real appointment to see him and he called me on the phone and he said, Benny, we're going to do this on the phone because you come in here too often now. <laughs> like you can't keep coming to the doctor. And I'm thinking to myself, that would never happen in America because they're getting paid. They're, a, they're getting paid. B, you know, maybe I wouldn't have insurance. And I wouldn't be able to go to the doctor and it'd be a luxury. But here it's just like, all right, yeah, I'll go to the doctor. I'll be a regular customer of my doctor because it doesn't cost me anything that I can feel. You know, I mean, it's incredible. We have, I remember we spent one year uh, abroad. We had one child at the time and I began, I began a doctoral program uh, at New York University uh, in New York. And being that I was a, a graduate student, I was able to buy uh, insurance for health insurance, very comprehensive health insurance for the, what was considered the, you know, the bargain rate of $2,000, uh, for the nine month period. And I was able to insure our son for $7,000, additionally $9,000. Okay. Right. If I wanted to insure my husband as well, that was an extra $7,000. Needless to say, I was a scholarship student that was beyond, you know, the realm. And while we were there, uh, my husband, Khabib broke a tooth. Now, to, to, to fix that tooth would have been thousands of dollars. So he literally went to the super farm, okay, and bought a little kit and kind of, you know, put it together himself until we could get back to Israel and we could pay it because we didn't have $5,000. You know, we were young parents and students. And, and Khabib, my husband, really is ingenious. He can, he can also fix teeth, among many other things, at least his own. But, um, but, but that's, a, that's a common experience in the U.S., and in Israel, that would never, ever, 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 ever happen. Sure. So first of all, you ne never forget what we have. And we don't. Um, and, 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 you know, despite the, the frustration, and, and you do, we have incredibly high rate of unemployment at the moment. And I would never, you know, I see here in my community uh, as well uh, that we have, uh, we just, we have so many, so many families with one or two a unemployed families, uh, or people like us, you know what I mean? Who had additional kind of side businesses that were just killed by the Corona. So yep. I, I mean, in my entire community, it's, it's hard to, to find people who, you know, were, were, were entirely ineffective. We lost, you know, either a portion or all, uh, of their income. Um, so yes, you know what I'm saying? In that we, kind of we, atmosphere. We facing in that kind of atmosphere, mm -hmm. and the public is protesting, um, and it started out as anti, I think it started out as anti-Netanyahu or anti-Likud protests, but, but it's, I think it's gone past that. Why in this kind of environment, and this is maybe indicative of the instability of the Israeli system, with all the good things that you mentioned for sure, why are they even talking about another election? Why can't this coalition, why can't coalitions, you know, for lack of a better term, keep their shit together? Well, the coalition state system is, is, is inherently unstable. 
um, it, it's built to be that way, okay? Our system is actually most similar to Italy. Uh, if you want to get, you know, kind of, uh, you know, compare like with like. Uh, and if you look at the Italian system, then yes, you know, their parliament also dissolves, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday. Um, and, and the reason that it's built that way is because we have very disparate groups within Israeli society. You might call them tribes, right? We have Jews, we have Arabs, we have religious, we have not religious, right? We have people who live in the center, we have people who live in the periphery. And I, I would say that the source of power, right? The, 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 the agreement of the people, right? You know, if you go back to your Locke or, uh, or to your other, you know, political philosophers, you know, what is the moment? What is, what is the ultimate source of power, right? Is it the, the divine king, right, who receives it? Or is it some sort of social contract, some sort of compact of the people? And so in a parliamentary democracy, that kind of base source of power is the agreement between all the different tribes, right? Is the agreement that in the end, right, we're not going to succeed in killing each other. And so we're going to have to find some way to live together and to divide the limited resources uh, that are at our disposal. Um, and with, and, and then that's what, a, that's what a coalition system essentially uh, represents, right? It's a series of small parties. And, and part of the reason um, that our system has become less stable over the years is that there used to be, right, there used to be two large parties. Um, over the years, uh, people's affiliations have perhaps become more defined, okay? And then they're looking, rather than finding, you know, you're either Likud or Mapai or, you know, whatever iteration uh, of one of the two large parties, you're now looking for a party that more uh, exactly represents your interests, right? You're voting for Shas, uh, for, for Meritz, uh, you know, which are, you know, Meritz is similar to Avoda, but not really, right? Shas is, has some similarities uh, to, the, to the Likud, but not really, right? Uh, same being a Via Duta Toa uh, or a, you know, or Lieberman's party, Yisraeli um, Beteno, Kulano no longer exists, but to some extent. Um, and, and the system kind of fractured uh, in the post, uh, I, would, I would say it's in the post-Oslo period, right? Because pre-Oslo, there was, there was kind of one big question that divided Israeli societies. You know, were you for negotiations, whether it was a one state, two state, half a state, however it was, but were you for negotiations with or compromise or were you against right. with the Palestinians, right? Obviously with the Palestinians, you know, in whatever duration, were you, you know, in favor of trying to reach some sort of agreement or were you opposed to that? And that kind of created these two separate camps and people came out to vote more or less in these two large camps. After the Second Intifada, you see um, it's really our generation, right? Uh, kind of is the first generation. What did you say? Just to put it in context for, for some of our listeners, we're talking about 2003, 2004, right? Around that. We're talking about 2003, 2004, right? We're talking about children like us, right? Born in the early 80s, okay? Early to mid 80s, like who grow up. We're young. What? We're young. We're young. We're, I was born in 84. I'm very you young. I'm 82. Um, so you're there you go. Uh, so, uh, you know, people who were born in the 80s who kind of grew up came of age in the sense of, you know, being kind of aware of what's going on in the 90s at the height of the peace process, sure. right? Believe that they're going to be the first generation, if not to serve, then to serve in a peacetime army to kind of enter the new, you know, kind of post uh, 
post-conflict era. Uh, and, they, and rather than entering the post-conflict era, right, the second intifada breaks out, and we find ourselves between 18 and 20 in one of the most uh, bitter, divisive, depressing conflicts uh, that this country has seen, right? We find ourselves serving uh, at the checkpoints of the second intifada, you know, uh, we find ourselves, you know, dealing with suicide bombing attacks, uh, exactly as we are teenagers, as we are coming of age. And, and that created a very deep disillusionment. You see there's a very sharp drop in voter participation, uh, exactly post Oslo. And in addition, this fragmentation of the large parties and people start to, rather than identify vis-a-vis uh, -vis questions of security and peace, they start to identify uh, with uh, parties that represent their religious affiliation, their socioeconomic status, their ethnic uh, affiliation, and, and that creates a fragmentation of the political system. And what as it fragments, the, uh, it becomes harder to create right. stable coalitions. That, that is no question. So, well, I mean, this is this is the difficulty inherent inherent in our system. What are the issues now? Okay, so you know, and I say this a lot in kind of my lectures, and we've talked about this in in other episodes. Um, what are the issues now that are dividing and uniting uh, the Israeli voter? Um, and, and then again, I come back to the main question. You know. We have COVID. We have this massive economic. No, we crisis. we don't have COVID. No, no, no. We don't have COVID. <laughs> We're Israel, cool. Israeli society, the world has COVID um, uh, on our minds. Um, why are they even talking about another election? Like, how does that even represent? Are we voter? are we in an endless election cycle now? Is this just the way it's going to be? Because as you just mentioned, it's become more and more fractious. It's fractured. It's it's become more. You know, there's many more smaller parties. It always has to be a fragile, very fragile coalition. And it's just going to be this thing where it's always, this is the way it is now. And, and we kind of need to think about reforming the system of government or, or like, what's going on? I mean, look, I don't have a crystal ball. And in Israel, any, anything and everything is possible. I, I remember a uh, vignette that was told to me. Uh, by a senior politician of a discussion uh, that he had uh, with Nathan Shalansky. And Shalansky said that uh, politics is similar to chess, right? You have to think three or four moves ahead uh, in order to, you know, in order to plan your thing. And this person said it's similar to chess, except the fact that in politics, right, the person who's playing with you can just take the board and throw it out or use it to smack you on the head, right? I mean, you can... You know, it's it's not there's there isn't there are there aren't rules, especially in Israeli politics, right? I mean, if I had said to you a year ago we're about to go into three election cycles, you would have said to me you're crazy. I, Obviously, there's going to be a coalition. There's no possibility yeah. there's not going to be a coalition. Of course, they'll compromise. And so, you know, Israel is a system where you know where the impossible is possible, and you know that has both good and bad. Uh, you know, you know both good and bad things. At the moment, the talk of new elections uh, centers around the question of the budget. Right? right. By law, a, a new uh, a new government needs to pass a budget, as in present it to the government and have it go through three readings uh, in the parliament within a hundred days of the creation of that new government, uh, which brings us to August 28th, okay? We need to have a budget for this year, at least 2020 or whatever's left of it, um, by August 28th. Um, and as you know, there is a debate 
between the two uh, different halves of the coalition, right, led by Bibi Netanyahu and led by uh, Benjamin Gantz, uh, as to whether we should have a one-year budget or whether we should have a two-year budget, uh, and that is delaying the planning process, and, you know, the, the days tick by. We are currently July 28th, so, you know, at some point the clock will run out and either there will be a budget or there won't be a budget. Uh, in which case, either we will go to elections uh, or we don't go to elections. Is it just like massive? I mean, this is how the public sees it. This is how we see it, that it's it's just so, how cynical can the, and detached from the public, that's what I'm hearing, right? That the, the Knesset, and this isn't even a left-right thing anymore because because it's a it's a unity government that comprises the left center and the right. So, you know, this is just a critique of of the entire government, the entire unity coalition, how mm-hmm. detached can they be? And maybe you have a different view having been an insider. Is it a detachment? Is it a cynicism, a self-preservation? Or is it something so fundamental that they're willing to go to a ridiculous and wasteful fourth election over this issue? I mean, you know, that that's something that used to be a big deal. I don't think Doesn't anybody wants to go to a fourth election. Um Obviously, I'm not a spokesperson for you know any any major member of the coalition, and maybe they have interests that are not known to me. Um, not a political analyst, and have no have no interest in being. Um, I do think that there is currently a negotiation process going on vis-a-vis uh, the budget. I, I think that both sides believe that they will be able to settle it, and pass a budget, or at least I would have said that a month ago when, you know, this, this started. But, but in a coalition system, these arguments have an ability of taking on a life of themselves. Um, and, and what starts off as, you know, a disagreement or a game of chicken, you know, you kind of, you want to see who's going to break first and, and, you know, and who's going to win the argument. And there are good arguments for a one-year budget and there are good arguments for a two-year budget, uh, both in terms of political stability and in terms of financial planning. There are, you know, you, you can build the case in either direction. Uh, and I think that each party is genuinely convinced that, that their position is the correct one, uh, both for themselves and for the public, which is two separate interests. But in this case, uh, I think that they're convinced of both. Um, but, uh, but as I said, the, you know, one thing we learned from the three election cycle was that, you know, the kind of the understanding or the belief that in the end, people are going to compromise for the public good uh, doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes disagreements take on a life of their own. And, you know, what starts as, you know, a game of seeing who's going to blink first uh, and who's, you know, whose opinion is going to win out, it takes on a life of its own. And in the end, you find yourself in an election you never, you never dreamed of. So, so it, it's possible. Um, I mean, we're currently in, un, we're really in uncharted territory. We've never had a government like this. Uh, this kind of two-headed government. Uh, it required a uh, change to the majority of the basic laws, which compromised the de facto constitution of the state of Israel. So, I mean, if you compare it to the American you know, system, it's like having two presidents and we had to change the constitution yeah. to make it happen. I mean, this was, you know, it, it just hugely unprecedented government. So 
whether this model is good, not stable, not stable, we're, we're really in uncharted territories. And along with that, uh, with the, with vis-a-vis -vis the COVID, we're again, we're in, we're we're in uncharted territories in terms of uh, certainly in terms of the health impact, in terms of the economic impact. We've had poor periods before, but not in recent memory. There's no question that this is the worst uh, economic crisis that at least most adults, uh, you know, or most people our age today uh, can remember. If you look at a map of a conceptual map of where most Israeli voters are, not by party, but by topics that interest them. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at a conceptual map of where most Israeli voters are by their actual interests, and, and maybe this is kind of where, you know, Lobby 99 kind of connects to this, right? You're trying to take those issues that are important to most people, right? Um, I'm trying to find common consensus yeah, yeah, issues. Right. Yeah. So, so you can work with people kind of across party lines. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, in the Knesset, you, everyone can agree we need a better healthcare system. You know, even if it's good, we need a better healthcare system. We need to invest more. You know, there's uh, environmental laws don't seem to be an issue here. Uh, environmental protection that's not, you know, like in the United States, those are massively divisive issues. Here they're not. So, so once again, if we can agree on, as a society, 80% of the issues, why do the governments of the past 10 years uh, always seem to be narrow right-wing religious coalitions? And, and, you know, I don't want to get you into a place where you don't want to talk about specific politics, but let's talk about it kind of from an overview of, you know, the way people vote here. Um, what, if, you are, if you were to be a political advisor, okay, and someone approaches you and say, how can I change around the, the way that the coalitions work? How can I get the 80% represented in the government coalition and not have it be a narrow government, whether it's right or left? Right now it happens to be right. In the past it used to be left-wing governments. But is, is there a way to break that? I mean, what's missing on the center left right now? Uh, is it Bibi and his you know personal magic or is there something bigger that nobody can seem to break the kind of narrow right-wing religious coalitions of the past decade? Um, I mean, I don't really talk politics. Uh, sure. It's kind of beyond my purview. But um, uh, we have seen that broad coalitions are less stable. Uh, you can think of a, the Likud Kadima government, uh, which was a broad coalition, which was not very stable. Our current government, which is a broad coalition, which doesn't seem to be very stable, um, as opposed to the government of... Uh, let me see, what was it? Not 2015, but the government before that, you know, uh, which there was the 2013 government, right? And then the 2015 government and 2015 government more or less served out its term of, uh, you know, of four years. I mean, that that was, it, it, yes, it was, you know, it says a narrow coalition, the sense that the coalition was, you know, some uh, 60, 65 members, uh, but uh, but it was more stable. Uh, you know, there are kind of, you know, there are arguments, you know, the idea of having broad consensus is, is important for sure, but it, it does seem to be less stable, you know, in the terms of sense of, of, of nothing advancing and nothing happening. Um, it, it takes time, but I do think that the trajectory uh, is upwards. I mean, if we go back to the, up, you know, the hyperinflation of the, uh, you know, of the, of the mid eighties, um, you know, that, that was not, you know, there was a huge project to get that under control. And you see it dropping, you know, to 10, 5, 2%, negative percents, more or less up until the current COVID crisis. Uh, we have kept, you know, uh, inflation under control for, you know, 
for 20, 25 years in a country where we had to change currency, you know, three times during the course of five years because of hyperinflation. So, so there are problems that are solved. It used to be impossible to invest, right? I mean, that was Robin's story more than uh, to own or to invest more than $10,000 in foreign currency uh, in the Israeli market, right? And today that's, it's, it's, it's inconceivable. The world of startup nation, right? Where we are, we're proud of the fact that, you know, how many Israeli companies make exits uh, onto the NASDAQ uh, or, you know, other foreign exchanges. And that's, you know, and we're proud of the fact that we're, you know, one of the top uh, spots for uh, foreign direct investment. So, so, so things do change, uh, you know, uh, and I think they do change for the better. Uh, one of the big problems in this country is uh, our infrastructure, yeah. right? Uh, and it took years and years and years more than it was planned, but there is actually a light rail in Jerusalem now and it does work, yeah. you know, and yeah. the same thing for, you know, the fast train between Right, the fast stream between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, which still doesn't really quite work all the time, but it's closer. It's definitely closer. It works most days. We just need to solve the COVID problem for me to be comfortable to get on a train. Exactly. There's really nobody else on the train, so you should be fine. They're very empty these days. Well, you, you're here. Um, you, you mentioned before that one of your, you know, your purview, your purvey Lobby 99 is healthcare. You know what's going on in terms of you know lobbying lobbying efforts in healthcare with uh, the impact of COVID. How does that impact what you need to do? The impact of a COVID is, is is yet to be seen unclear. I mean, we're currently we're in the middle of the crisis. Um, uh, you know, I have no question that when we come out of this crisis, there's going to be a big story as to what vaccine we chose and why we chose it and whose interest we should have served by choosing that vaccine as opposed to other vaccines. There have been similar problems uh, with the vaccines in the past. If you remember, in the early um, I believe it was in the early 2000s, uh, there was a vaccine that uh, wasn't part of the health basket, i.e. wasn't subsidized by the government, uh, and it was a vaccine for cervical cancer. I don't know if you remember this, but it was pushed very heavily. Uh, nobody know. Why would you remember this? Uh, but it was pushed very heavily uh, in the early 2000s. It was a very costly vaccine. Yeah, you didn't you didn't deal with it, but it was any well. So anybody who who was you know twenty plus sure. uh, by the early two thousands will remember this. It was uh, it was in a private vaccine. Okay, it cost several hundred, if not thousand, shekels, and it was given with three different vaccines, and it was supposed to make you immune, uh, you a woman immune to cervical cancer. Uh, you know, fast forward 10 years, and, and a lot of people debated. I remember myself, I remember we debating, should we do it, should we not do it? It's a lot of money. Um, on the other hand, I mean, it's cancer, right? You know, how can you not do it? So if you fast forward that 10 years, it, it turned out in retrospect that this, and I am very much pro-vaccine, my children are entirely vaccinated. They're as vaccinated as you can get. Um, but, um, but it turned out specifically in this case, that this vaccine had an enormous amount of side effects, negative side effects, some of which created long-term damage. No um, and that, yes, and that this vaccine had been pushed generally, it takes about two years for a vaccine to be approved uh, and to enter the health, and not necessarily the health basket where it's subsidized, but to be you know, approved by the health apparatus here in Israel. Uh, and this, this, pers- this vaccine had gone through a two-month vetting period, as opposed to a two-year vetting period, uh, as the results of uh, a commercial lobbyist pulling strings uh-huh. and kind of pushing it through. So, 
you know, that's, that's, a, you know, that's not a current story. That's a past story. Um, but I have no doubt that we'll, we'll see when we break down, you know, COVID, uh, you know, kind of in retrospect, um, what, you know, what the effect of COVID was, you know, on the health system. Um, one issue within the purview of health that uh, we are dealing with, uh, several issues that we're dealing with, one, for example, uh, is, a, is the influence of drug reps. Mm-hmm. on uh, the health basket, reps. on yeah. the decision. What? Pharmaceutical. What you say? Pharma- pharmaceutical. pharmaceutical reps. Yeah. Sorry. I don't know the, the, the American terminology. Yeah, pharmaceutical representatives. Drug um, like yeah. drugs. It sounds like my dealer. <laughs> no, no, not drugs. Sorry, sorry. Med- metal representatives of pharmaceutical companies. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you for the, uh, for the, the correction. There's no confusion. Um, right? so, drug dealers, right? No, not drug dealers. No, 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 no. These are legal, legal, mostly legal um, uh, items. And um, there was actually, there was a, um, was in, if I recall correctly, uh, it was in 20, I'm going to botch this, uh, but I think it was in 2016. Um, there was, it could be, it could be off in that there was in, uh, a big, uh, it was 2017, even 2017, 2018, maybe it was 2018. Um, there was a big expose uh, by Lviv and, uh, you know, channel two, uh, news, major news channel. And what they had done is they had placed a hidden camera on a representative of a pharmaceutical company. And she had, uh, kind of wandered around doctor's offices for a course of several years, interacting with the doctors and offering them, um, you know, paid lunches and trips abroad uh, and uh, speaking events for lucrative fees. Uh, if a, you know, they prescribed the medicines uh, that that company offered and B what's kind of, you know, the, the, the ultimate, um, you know, recommendation is a recommendation to include uh, new trial drugs uh, within, you know, within the health basket. Cause once, you know, a drug is included in the health basket, that's the big money, you know, the kind of the individual prescriptions, you know, that's the nickel and dimes. The big money is ensuring that, you know, your newly developed medicine, you, the pharmaceutical companies, newly developed medicine, which probably costs an enormous amount in development, is then included in a, the annual addition to the health basket uh, and then dispensed, uh, you know, by each of the, you know, the by each of the, uh, the national insurance companies we have for in Israel. Um, and so up until this point, as Americans, you're probably well aware, right? You know, that they have all these movies uh, about representatives of pharmaceutical companies. It's like 17 of them. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's even in the big bang theory, right. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the head female character, right. Uh, she's a representative of a pharmaceutical company. And then like, it's mm-hmm. great. She's going to walk around mm-hmm. and talk to people. I get a great amount of money. I mean, this is nothing. What could be better? Uh, and so in, in Israel, there wasn't quite the same uh, awareness, you know, that there's kind of this give and take. Uh, between pharmaceutical companies and senior members, really all members, you know, senior members at least of the uh, a certain you know medical fields, and uh, this expose shined light uh, on on the issue from the beginning. And once it was kind of exposed, we took it on uh, in lobby ninety nine. We turned to the Ministry of Health and we said you know, you have to, you have to start regulating this. It can't, it can't be that, you know, these people are just wandering around, you know, the, the, the medical offices and hospitals and they're offering um, benefits, you know, and nobody knows who's meeting or who's getting, who's, 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 what's, where, how, when, why, right? 
Um, and so the, in response, uh, the Ministry of Health put out, created a, uh, an internal memorandum, but it, it has a legal status, which said that uh, representatives of pharmaceutical companies could not, uh, could no longer meet, could no longer do these individual one-on-one -on -one meetings uh, with doctors. Uh, and dealing that we live in Israel, uh, the doctors uh, and the pharmaceutical representatives sued. They went to Bagatz uh, and they said, uh, you are, you know, you are hurting our, uh, our right to make a living uh, and we want to get these benefits. Uh, and uh, the Ministry of Health has no right to regulate uh, our interactions. And one of, uh, one of our big projects was the Ministry of Health turned to us and asked that we submit an amnius curious brief, which means that essentially we represent the public and we and draw upon our expertise to right. bring, what? Yeah, was just an a, amnius brief, yeah. Like an outside expert brief in a, in a case. It's an outside expert, right. It's in English, it's called an amnius brief. It's, uh, it's, probably, it's used only in the Supreme Court, so it's, it's less known in the U.S., but here in Israel we use it a lot because we go to our Supreme Court a lot, much more than they do in the U.S. Um, and, uh, and we brought, uh, basically we supported the Ministry of Health's uh, model uh, that these meetings needed to be as limited uh, as possible, uh, and we won. Uh, you know, the court case. Of course, being that this is Israel, it then turned out that this ordinance that we had gone to Bagatz and had been appealed and we won was never implemented because we live in the Jewish state. Uh, and, now, uh, and now our current, one of our current projects is ensuring that it is indeed actually implemented. Uh, and that uh, in the end, there was a compromise between the two different parties, which is very common uh, when you go to Bagatz, and they decided that it would be permissible to do one-on-one -on -one meetings, but that these meetings need to be recorded, right? Who met with who, when, and how needed to be recorded, and it needed to be submitted to the Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health needed to publicize that to the general public. Um, and again, Corona's kind of come in the middle as, as a disruptor, but that's one of our big projects is ensuring that a, the meetings stop. Uh, they were supposed to stop as of November 2019, but they haven't. And, uh, and B, in the event that they aren't stopped, then at least that they're publicized so that people understand, you know, kind of what, you know, when, when, when a senior doctor uh, joins uh, the, the committee that decides what goes into the health basket or what doesn't, you can do a simple Google search and find out who they've met with uh, and who they've received funding with. And, and understand better the matrix of interests and influences that they bring to the table. So that's an example of work that we're doing uh, kind of in the healthcare field. Uh, another thing that we're very involved in uh, is all the different different reforms that are going into effect um, regarding uh, food. I'm sure you've gone to the supermarket, right? You've seen kind of the red and the green labeling, uh, you know, hate those i know i know no, you, you know that they're for very people, effective for people they're, they're, don't know they're what, effective among younger people yeah, for yeah people they're not effective among uh, people our age that when you go to the supermarket yes. and you buy any product that happens to have a high level of sodium or high level of sugar or a high fat. level of saturated fat or fat or saturated fat, i don't know which one there's a, saturated a, a warning fat saturated fat yeah saturated fat so there's like a warning label that's put on the front of the product and it's kind of eye-opening in a way. I'm not, I don't know if I'm against it. I, I, I see it everywhere because I go shopping all the time. Kids, you know what? But, but it's like you start realizing how much of everything that you buy at the supermarket has saturated fat, yeah. high amounts of sugar. So, but, but is it, it like, really? It has like, things like tchina, which is a very healthy fat right. that you actually need in there's, your diet. There's no uh, nuance. There's no nuance. There's no nuance. <laughs> 
we're all about nuance on this show. So there's there's also what they're working on is also the green labels, okay? And there's a trina currently. If you go go back to the supermarket when you're done, uh, and you'll find uh, that there's a trina with a green label, uh, which is uh, less processed. Uh-huh. Okay, it has the same amount of fats, but it's less processed, and that receives kind of you know green for go, red for stop. Uh, that's the idea, and um, and, and and it's a um, it's it's a reform. Uh, it, we believe it that it will be effective. So a form that we adopted actually from Chile uh, was the first country to do it. Uh, and there, the for example, the consumption of sugary drinks, um, you know, fizzy sodas and whatnot, uh, dropped something like 30, 40 percent um, after, you know, these, this, these measures uh, were, you know, uh, enacted. And we hope uh, that eventually it'll have a similar effect. But actually, the real point, and then this is probably one of those behind the scene things, uh, the real purpose of the reform is not the stickers. The stickers are a byproduct, right? Mm-hmm. And research shows that people who are above their 20s aren't really going to watch the stickers anyhow, right? At that point, after your 20s, right, you're, you know, what you're going to buy is what you're going to buy. You're going to buy the same footage that you're used to buying. And doesn't matter they can put on a 25 red stickers you're still going to buy and you're going to eat it because that's what you know and that's what you want the real effect uh of the reform is in what's called the reformulation which is that companies don't want those red stickers right on their products so they're recreating the products with less salt less sugar less trans fats in order to avoid the red stickers. Mm. So what you're buying is healthier than what you would have bought two years ago, okay? And uh, and this reform kind of went into effect in two waves. The first wave was the beginning of 2020, and the second wave is the beginning of 2021, where the standard of how much trans fat, how much salt, how much sugar you can have in a product is going to be lowered, right? So it's going to be harder to reach uh, that that point, and and right, and more companies are going to have to do more reformulation and produce healthier products in order to avoid uh, the red labels. And uh, the major uh, food production companies in Israel uh, went to the Ministry of Health and they said, because of Corona, we can no longer comply uh, with this reform. We need the reform to be delayed. Yeah, six months at least, comply. you know. Why does Corona? Well, they, it's it's an excellent comply. question why they can't comply, right? So they said that they can't comply because they had to they had to uh, increase production, right? Because when everybody was sitting at home, we bought more groceries. And they had to increase production uh, during the Corona period, okay? Yeah. And here's somewhere where we, right, where we presented the counterbalance. We said, first of all, the people who are doing the reformization are not the people who are working on the production line, right? That's not the same people. The people yeah. who are filling the cottage are not the people who are reformulating how we make the cottage, right. okay? So the fact that you're filling more cottage, and cottage obviously is an example, it's, you know, anything. The fact that you're creating more food does not mean that you can't, uh, you know, that you can't rethink uh, the thinking process. B, this reform passed in early 20, when was it? It was early 2016 or 2018. I'm sorry. In instance, there was uh, from between 20, it was passed, in, I believe, in January, December of 20, it was early 2018. But there was, it was about three years between when it was passed and when the final phase uh, at the, as of the beginning of 2021 comes into effect. So two months of corona is not what's going to make a difference. You had two and a half years before the corona hit, you know, to rethink your processing. You're, you're, you know, this, this is an excuse. Sure. Again, if, if you weren't, you know, if you didn't have an organization like us to sit in the room with the Ministry of Health, 
while they're listening to, you know, these claims by the lobbyists for the, you know, the commercial lobbyists for the large food companies and say, this is absurd. You know, there's no reason that they need to raise prices in order to meet, you know, reformulization uh, requirements. This is kind of the sort of kind of the behind the scenes, uh, you know, the deeper dive. Uh, that we can offer it. And then this was one of our big successes is that in the end, we were able to stop, uh, you know, kind of halt that request. Uh, and as of now, the second and perhaps arguably the more important phase of the reform uh, is, is still going to go into effect as of uh, January 2021. Uh, I have no doubt that there will be more attempts to uh, delay it and, uh, you know, and, and we'll be there. But that's, that's an example of something we're doing within the health field. Oh, fantastic. So we've, we've, done, we've done two hours, uh, and we know that your time is precious. But before we let you go, I want to end by asking a couple of uh, very random questions, but very important questions. One is, uh, if there was no COVID and everything was going on as normal, um, what would be a restaurant that you would recommend? Uh, our second question is uh, a TV show that you're currently watching or a couple shows that you can recommend. And uh, that's book really embarrassing. Is it? <laughs> and number three, books or podcasts that you would uh, recommend to our to our listeners. Basically, right, so, well, you're book, not a mother of four, and you're not doing this massive public lobbying thing. What are you doing in your spare time? I really, I haven't read a book or listened to a podcast since my oldest was born. He's turning ten, so <laughs> unfortunately, I, I I can't answer that question. Um, I was actually it was it was in a job interview, not for Lobby Ninety Nine. Uh, but beforehand for a different thing. And, and they wanted eh, they wanted to test my Hebrew, you know, how, how fluent I was in Israeli society. And so they asked me what books I had read. You know, they wanted, basically wanted to see whether I identified as left or right, you right. know, regarding what book I would say. And I said, are you crazy? I have four little kids. I haven't read a book in a decade. <laughs> yeah, you um, like but uh, yeah. Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Dr. Uh, Dr. Seuss, where does that fall? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, well, you know, honestly, my kids don't, you know, kids don't read as much anymore. I mean, my, I guess I'm a poor parent. Now I just, you know, I reveal that my kids don't read as much <laughs> anymore. Reading uh, nonstop. It's incredible. Overachiever. Uh, you are an incredible parent. My children watch Star Wars nonstop. Wow. Um, but uh, yes. Yes, I have seen all of the Star Wars over, as it, uh, including. Two, there are six seasons of the cartoon, okay, which is the period between Anakin Skywalker uh, before I, when we, we end with Anakin Skywalker before he becomes the Dark Lord, there are seven seasons of cartoons and I have seen them all in between. So, you know, there's all these different interesting things I learned during COVID. But uh, one of my kids, my son's first words were Stormtrooper. So, you know, and it's a hard word to say in English. It's like STR. It's really hard to pronounce. But, uh, but back to your thing, in terms of TV shows, I guess I like like historical fiction shows. I watched all of Vikings. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gotten like the third really or fourth episode. I got kind of lost interest after a while. Um, it's gotten so good lately. Oh, they, so, you know, I got to go back to it. I only saw like the first uh, three or, you know, three or four seasons. I really liked that BBC show, uh, which was similar. Um, um, what was it called? Also kind of Vikings, um, uh, about the kind of the unification of England, uh, in Oh, the my wife's of, watching uh, this. of Alfred. Um, 
Yeah, uh, yeah. In Hebrew, it's um, called like Zara. No, no, that's different. That's Outlander. That's a, that's a romance. Great season. And yes, I admit that I have also season. I've also seen that, though I generally wouldn't admit that in public. That's Outlander. That's a romance. Out there, um, but uh, no, there's actually it's a different season. It's a different. Um, it's a different show. But anyhow, again, on that same kind of you know, this seems sure. to be the you know the kind of Viking warrior uh, theme. I like that sort of stuff. Um, I recently saw this movie by Charlize Theron, which I thought was really good, Old Guard, uh, which is currently it. running on Netflix, uh, which is good. really interesting it's got a lot of uh, in terms of the casting. And uh, and I actually think Charlize Theron is great. I've, I mean, I've seen all of her action stuff from Mad Max Fury to mm-hmm. uh, the Italian job to this. I think yeah, she's yeah, phenomenal. Right you know, kind of really, you know, kick-ass uh, uh, action figure. Did you see the one, did you see the movie? Uh, I like her she, stuff. Did you see the movie that she recently did with uh, Seth Rogen where she was the Secretary oh, of State? Oh, that was brilliant. Oh, my God. No, I didn't see that. You, you'll like this. No. So, Again, so, I, have, I have limited time. You have to send it to me. And I, and I don't like seeing any, like, I haven't seen House of Cards. I don't like seeing any of that, you know, kind of like the realistic stuff. It's rough. So. Uh, or, um, you, you know, that? This Is Us. I don't want to see anything that it all relates to my life. That's no, there's no reason for me to spend my one hour a day alone, you know, regurgitating my own life. I, I prefer the Vikings. So, so Charlie's um, Theron made a movie with Seth Rogen, the comedian. Um, where it's, called, she, it's called Long Shot. Long Shot, where she's the, she's a, she becomes Secretary of State. In the United States. In the United mm-hmm. States. And he's this kind of, you know, uh, may, maybe uh, for, for those who don't know, although I can imagine anyone who knows you knows uh, you're, you're also a very interesting husband, uh, Chaviv, who's a journalist and, and a writer. Um, but by the way, I gotta imagine that your dinner table conversations are fascinating between the two of you. Um, so we always work, never talk. <laughs> so, so she's Secretary of State, and he is a kind of rebellious but very talented journalist who becomes her speechwriter, uh, and they end up, mm. you know, having a whole uh, thing. But it's a very, very good. Um, uh, comedy drama set in international it. politics. Highly recommended. Very funny. Not to be seen with Very the cool. A little inappropriate. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. No, no worries. Wonderful. So um, if, our, if our listeners and um, want to learn more about Lobby 99, want to get involved, want to become uh, not donors, but members, or if they want to invite you guys for a, uh, a briefing or like a, an introduction, how do they go about doing that? Uh, you can go on our website. Uh, it's very simple. Or you can contact me directly. Uh, my email is very simple. It's uh, Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at Lobby99, L-O-B-B. Oh, now, how do you spell Lobby? Y, uh, in English, uh, at, uh, you know, org doc, dot, uh, you know, dot co dot il. Um, uh, or you can just contact us uh, via the website. Uh, again, our, our well, English, unfortunately, what? We'll put this all in the show notes too, so people can easily interface. Yeah, you can you can reach me directly, um, or you can reach us uh, via the website. We have a phenomenal community manager who uh, and I would also I would encourage you. Uh, I am not the only English speaker there. There is uh, someone else, a, our director of research. His name is Ariel Paz Slovitsky, and his expertise is actually the gas deal. 
Um, and he's done probably preeminent amount of research uh, into that. His background is intelligence, um, as in military intelligence. Uh, afterwards, he did a degree in Hopkins, and he's now working for us, uh, kind of doing deep research. Uh, and his parents are English speakers. He has excellent English. In addition to like French, Italian, and Portuguese, he's one of those miserable people who speak a million languages. As, as one does. Uh, yes, as right, exactly, as everybody but me seems to have. You mean you don't? You know, there's miserable people who speak a ton of languages. I mean, I barely speak English and Hebrew, but you know, I meet these people who speak seven or eight languages, and they just make it seem so simple that you know, you just you want to hit them. But uh, but I would actually encourage you to have uh, have him on your show, perhaps at some later point, because uh, he could give you a real deep dive uh, into the whole world of uh, natural resources in Israel in general, uh, and he's done. Uh, an enormous amount of research a, into the gas deal and also into the whole uh, question of the Dead Sea okay. uh, and the disappearing Dead Sea and who's benefiting from the disappearing Dead Sea and who's not benefiting from the disappearing Dead Sea. Uh, and I think that that could be yeah, you know, something like of a, interest. A whole other episode we can get into. Most definitely. Wonderful. definitely. So, Helgo, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. It's been our pleasure. And um, we wish you a lot of success in your thank lobbying you. efforts for 99% of the public. Join. Be part of the ninety-nine percent. That's 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 the most important part. I think I think I might. I was actually convinced. Yeah, I so. think you convinced both of us. I think I during think this, you, I think you got two new members. Well, now. you should know that I have the CRM on my phone, so I can see instantly if you join or don't join. <laughs> I have uh, I have I have immediate yeah. tracking. We. we it's just it's an important thing to put out there, you know, because that's how we always say, you know, so, you know, commitments are important. Money is more important. True. And uh, but no, it was absolute pleasure. Bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.